Good afternoon. Hope everybody has had a, a pleasant afternoon. You got to go out and have your bellies full, and hopefully you're not too tired to, to spend a little bit more time in God's Word. It is just, a, again, an incredible opportunity that we have, uh, one that I hope we, we never really fully take for granted, the, the beautiful scene that is portrayed within the church uh, as the family gathers together to, to worship God uh, and the, the resemblance that that will have for, for all of eternity. If we're, if we're not happy to be here, if we're not happy to be gathered together, I, to the person that, that just really, I, I, I have to be drugged to come to services. I, I feel sorry for you in the day of eternity because that's the, the description that we see over and over again of heaven is very resemblant to, to the church services and to, to the, the being together with the saints, being gathered around the throne of God and worshiping Him. And so I, I hope that, uh, that, that you, uh, like me, are, are excited to be here this afternoon. And I wanted just to explain very quickly just a little bit about tonight's study. Um, what we're going to talk about is something we started several weeks ago. We're going to look at the question, how did we get the Bible? And we're going to, to continue that look tonight. Um, and now I realize this, this course of study that we're going to be doing, it's, it's a little bit different than what maybe we've grown accustomed to hearing from the pulpit. Tonight's study is, is uh, maybe going to feel a little bit more like a, like a Bible study instead of maybe uh, a sermon. But I believe if we pause and we give heed to the question, how do we get the Bible, that we will see some extraordinary points about God. Uh, points that I believe he is, he is trying to also teach us through his word and points that show us the awesomeness of the providence of God and, and his role in revealing his word to us. Now, last time we talked, we talked about inspiration. And just in case you, you maybe don't remember that sermon, it's been a couple weeks ago, just in case maybe perhaps you missed it, it is on our website. I encourage you to go listen to it. But we pointed out in that lesson that the Bible claims to be more than just the summaries and the thoughts of men, but the direct word of God. In passages like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God. And we notice facts like the phrases, The word of the Lord came to blank, or thus says the Lord, was recorded over 3,800 times in the Scriptures. But what I want to look at this morning, or excuse me, this afternoon, is that phrase, All Scripture. What exactly is that? If we open up our Bibles, especially if you open up your Bibles to the very front of them, you'll see that, that table of contents, you know, that cheat sheet so you can find those prophets that are really hard to, to, to get to quickly. We'll see that table of contents and we'll notice that the Bible is not one big book. The, the Bible is actually a library of books and it is broken up into two main divisions, two main components, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I know right about now you're thinking, I've had my belly filled, and Kyle, you're telling me there's an Old and a New Testament? That is really not the exciting, engaging sermons that, that, that we want to hear. But what I do want to talk to you about this afternoon is, is what we see when we, when we look into the library, and especially this first part of the library that we have as the Bible, and that is the Old Testament. How did we get it? How was it formed? Who, uh, who picked the books out of? And do we really even know if the Old Testament is actually a part of the Bible? Is that, is that really what it is? And so to begin our study uh, this afternoon, we need to start by, by considering some of the tools by which the Scripture we have today were transmitted through the, throughout the ages. Now we have um, seen a huge jump in recent years uh, in the, the, the way that we communicate. 
and the transmission of physical media has, has switched to digital media. What we might have at one time accomplished with a, a letter and a pen is now most oftentimes accomplished with, with a text message or with an email. It's been a huge change in, in our lifetimes, the way we communicate. The Bible was revealed at a time when, when man was at their earliest stages of human communication. The way that thoughts were conveyed, the way that values were conveyed, they were recorded in a, in a written form through a few basic materials. One of the first ones I want to notice is that they were recorded on tablets. That's what you see here behind me. Whether they were made of stone or whether they were made of clay, writers would utilize a chisel uh, and, and a rock, and they would, they would uh, chisel, chisel into it with maybe iron, or they would impress into it or engrave it, stamp it. All of these were different forms in which they, they utilized to put this information onto a tablet. And the Bible talks about that in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. Another very common place, maybe the first tablet we think of when we think about the Bible, Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, it says, And when he made an end of speaking to him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And these were some of the Old Testament passages uh, that, that, that we just can go to very quickly. Think about that, that material that they used to record this. And there were other Old Testament passages. In fact, there was likely a lot of Old Testament passages that were written on tablet. But none of those, as far as we know, have, have remained until today. We can't go and we can't find the tablet uh, with, with that, that God wrote with his finger. We can't go find the tablets that have recordings of, of some of these early, early laws and, and books that were given. But one thing that we can find are the scrolls. It's another form in which they recorded the written history. It was scrolls made out of several different materials. Some scrolls were made out of papyrus. Papyrus is a dried plant stalk. They would take these plants and they would, they would lay them out and dry them and then they would flatten them down and glue them together and then until they were able to, to, to roll them up. Another way they would do it was with parchment. This was, was animal hide. They would scrape the hides clean and they would make basically leather out of them. And they would take these, they would sew them together and put them into a roll. And we read about scrolls a lot in the Bible, don't we? We read about it in Jeremiah 36 verse 2. Take a scroll of a book. And write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. Exodus 31, verse 1. It says, Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me. Excuse me, I said Exodus. I'm in Ezekiel 2, verse 9. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was on it. And then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. And just a, a side point right here, we're going to talk more about this in our study on Revelation, this idea of a, a scroll with writing on the inside and the out. Because most commonly, when they wrote on a scroll, they would only write on one side of it. And so you picture this, a, a book that is, has so much information that it's within and it's without. That was the type of judgment that was coming uh, on the people. The, the writing on the inside and the out and written on it were the lamentations and the mourning and the woe. It was the, magnific uh, the magnitude of this, of this great judgment of God. So what we know today, what we know today is the books of the Bible. Uh, they, would have been, they would have been in scroll format. In fact, the formation of them into a book, which is known as a codex, that didn't happen until actually a good while after the life of Christ. But we also need to see that not just was there a material that they, the, the, you know, notice the materials they used, we also need to notice a little bit more about the, the way that they did this. Not only do we know what they wrote on, we know what they wrote 
obviously the early writings, they wouldn't resemble our, our language today. It doesn't look anything like what the American alphabet is. But what is interesting is that while in the earliest times, God was revealing himself to man through the spoken word alone. We think of Noah and we think of Abraham and Adam and God revealed himself through, through speaking to the forefathers. But at, a, at some point, he decided to reveal himself to man in a written form so that it could be utilized by mankind as a whole. And God chose to do this at a very key moment in human history. And I want us to remember that because we're going to see something again when we look at the formation of the New Testament. Uh, that, that God has chosen to do this at a very certain time. And understanding the importance of the timing of the revelation of God's Word in written format involves understanding the, written, uh, the writing systems that were used. When we consider these early writing systems, one of the first one that we need to recognize is ideographic writing systems. This is the idea of, of, of ideas being conveyed, being taught by pictures. Uh, and we, maybe the first thing we think of when we think of that is hieroglyphics. You think of Egypt, think of the, the pyramids, and, when, and that's where we go. We're going to go in the pyramids and the tombs, and we'll see these pictures everywhere. And this was the way that they conveyed a message. Another idea of ideographic um, communication is cuneiform. These are found throughout Mesopotamia and Persia and the Levant, which includes the eastern shores of the Mediterranean, such as the area of Canaan. And these two forms were, were some of the earliest forms of writing that mankind had. And they were, had a very, very significant drawback to them. The first one was, if you, cannot, if you can't draw very well, if you're not very artistic, then when, you, know, you look at that, it's pretty hard to get your, pick, your idea across if you can't draw it out. Uh, and the second drawback to that is, there's a lot of signs that are needed because each sign didn't, didn't represent, uh, each picture didn't just represent a, uh, a sound. It represented an image. It represented a thought. And so for, for the thoughts, you had to have many signs to get your, your message across. To a good example of this that we still have today is the Chinese uh, uh, language. The way the Chinese uh, write their language out is still this ideographic uh, form. And they have several symbols. In fact, throughout history, there have been times where the emperor of China had to go in and say, we're going to, we're going to thin out the symbols in our language from 15,000 symbols to 5,000 symbols. Now, can you imagine the difficulty that it takes to, to teach somebody 15,000 symbols so that they can, they can be a, a, someone who can write down thoughts and write down messages? This was one of the huge drawbacks with this sort of writing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, understanding this, many critics, uh, Charles, there's somebody at the door. <laughs> uh, many, many critics uh, began to doubt the law uh, could have possibly been given, could have possibly been written down for Moses because this was recorded as being, as being done around 1400 B.C. When you follow the timelines back, People would say, oh, how is it that Moses had this law written down for him? How is this given to him when, when the writing was, was in this, this hieroglyphic and cuneiform, this ideographic way? Uh, there's just no way that, that this could have possibly been true. This couldn't have happened at this time. But that has since been disproven with the discovery of the alphabetic languages. Graphic symbols representing sounds. We certainly should understand that. Um, and discovering near, the, near where the age the Israelites wandered in the wilderness of Sinai, the Proto-Sinaitic alphabet was, has been found, and it's dated back as early as 1500 B.C. That's, that's well predates the, the time of Moses when he, was, uh, when he was supposedly given the law. 
And it's also this proto sinaitic alphabet, which doesn't look anything like our alphabet, but it is the, the, the great ancestor of our own alphabet. And so this alphabet is much more accessible to the common man. It doesn't rely upon great artistic ability to write it and to decipher it. They were able to teach this and, and to spread the ideas uh, uh, and thoughts much more uh, clearly. So therefore, in the providence of God, we find that the first written revelations of God were given in the earliest stages of the use of a written system, and a system that was available to, to most people and eventually available to all people. Now, all of this allows us to see the tools that were used by the writers, the tools that, that they used guided by the Holy Spirit to record God's message for man. And again, as I said, this is going to definitely come into play again when we look at the spread of the gospel and the books of the New Testament. But before that, we need to look and consider still the formation of the Old Testament itself by considering three major events uh, that, that, that occurred during its time of revelation. The first of these three major events is the giving of the law of Moses. After Moses led the children out of Israel, or excuse, the children of Israel out of Egypt, uh, the Bible says that God revealed to Moses what the Jews referred to as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this all occurs in, in the area of the time around 1400 B.C. Now consider some of the things the Bible says about it here. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 34. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 29, verse 1 says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. In, in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 4, the last book of the Old Testament, it records to remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. And then Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1 says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square, and that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. The Bible itself, just as we spoke of with inspiration, claims that God gave the law to Moses. But yet man oftentimes says that this just cannot be true. Based primarily off of, off of different words that refer to God, words such as Jehovah, words like Elohim, many claim that the first five books of the Bible were not recorded at 1400 B.C. They were recorded very later in maybe around 400 B.C. They claim that the word was given, or that the world was given to idolatry, and slowly over time, this concept of monotheism, that there is one God, slowly began to form and became more normal. And so they described this through their religious writings. This is um, sometimes used as uh, called the 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 document the document uh, thesis. Excuse me, I'll get it out. Um, and people who believe this believe that it was. It was pious Jews who looked back and said, we need, to, we need to come up with a recording for all these beliefs that we have and write it out uh, so that we can continue to pass this message on. And they would have done so somewhere between this time frame of, of 900 and 400 B.C. So, so the Bible actually describes the exact opposite of this happening, however, with a monotheistic man who believed in one God and gradually the opposite happening, idolatry, uh, beginning to entice them and, and fill their worship. So which one of these is the truth? Which one is, is the one that we should rely upon? And again, I, I would, as, we, as we look to the Bible, I would consider this. Over 170 times in the first five books of the Bible alone, in the Pentateuch alone, we find statements like, "...the Lord spoke to Moses." Or the Lord said to Moses. Or the Lord commanded Moses. 
Several times the Bible makes it very clear that it isn't, it isn't trying to, to mince words here. It is claiming God gave this message to Moses. John the Apostle claimed that the law was given to Moses in John chapter 1 and verse 17. And Jesus himself referred to the law as given to Moses in Mark chapter 12 verse 26 and John chapter 7 verse 19. Now some might say, oh, that, that's very well and good, but those, those uh, sources that you cite, they're, they're pretty biased. Of course they're going to say these things because they believe the Bible uh, to be the truth. Well, let's also consider this, that some ancient writers also believed it to be written by Moses. A man by the name of Manetho, he was an Egyptian historian. That means he was a pagan historian, didn't believe uh, in the God of the Bible the way that we believe in him. He wrote in the year 240 B.C. that Moses was the man who gave them, the Israelites, their constitutions and their laws. So this is someone who is not biased. This is someone, an outsider, saying that at that early a time, they were considered, the law was considered to have come from Moses. Josephus, later in the mid-80s A.D., wrote that the scriptures were justly believed to be divine, and of them five belonged to Moses, which contains his laws and the traditions of the origins of mankind until his death. Truthfully, there is absolutely no evidence that supports the theory that the books of, the Mos- of Moses were written at such a late date by various men of the Jewish faith. And again, just like with inspiration, the Bible is very clear in its claims. The law came from God to Moses. Early historians believed this. Pagan historians believed this as well. Now, when we consider that that was the first of the major events that formed the Hebrew text, we move on to the second major event that was going to happen. It occurred several year, uh, centuries later, and that was the recovery of the book of the law. By the time the king Josiah, the young king of Judah, uh, came to power, the Israelites had seen their people given to idolatry over and over uh, time and again. And the children of Israel had been divided at this point into the northern kingdom and into the southern kingdom. And some had already been taken away into Assyrian captivity. And Judah, likewise, had, had turned from God, but occasionally a good king would come to power. He would come to the throne and would do that was, which was right in the eyes of God. And Josiah was just this type of king. I want us to consider what's written in 2 Kings 22, uh, in, in verse 8, uh, in the time of his life. It said, Then Hilkai, the high priest, said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkai gave the book of Shaphan and he, to Shaphan, and he read it. Now, one thing I want us to note here, did you see that phrase in there? The book of the law. That word is used, that phrase is used 19 times in the Old Testament. It's used once in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. What was this book of the law? Whenever we consider ancient scrolls, it's important for us to know the way uh, that we understand them today is not the way that they were originally written. Ancient scrolls were, were, uh, were oftentimes written without titles. In fact, uh, there's, there's a very famous scroll called the Isaiah scroll, which is part of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in Qumran. But in it, we, we realized that it had no title whatsoever. It was just the message written down. And it wasn't really until the Greeks came and started translating the Hebrew Bible that they started this process of giving them names. So names like Genesis, Exodus, those come from the Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible. And that's the same translations that, that many would have been using in the time of Christ that they would have been familiar with. Also, traditionally, whenever they would write these down in the scrolls, they would leave a, a break in between the messages with four lines in them. And that signified that a different, a different book was starting. And so when we read about the book of the law, 
It's very likely that this was either one very big scroll that contained the first five books, uh, the books of Moses, or it was a group of scrolls that contained all five books of the law. Now, it's very interesting to me that it says, I have found the book of the law. It's hard to fathom the fact that such an incredibly important document could have ever been lost. But it seems that's exactly what they had done. And did you notice the, the irony of where they found it? We found it. I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. It's very similar to me going to Holly and saying, I have found the lost detergent in the laundry room. It would be very clear to everyone around that Kyle obviously doesn't spend enough time helping Holly do the laundry. It's immediately clear that the children of Israel had drifted very far from God to not, uh, not have been able to find this book of the law. But also notice another important point. That God, therefore, up to this time has given man free will. Free will to follow him, free will to turn from him. And many had taken off, so many off into captivity. But in his providence, he always preserves his word. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Jesus certainly understood this point as he talked on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. He understood that the, the permanency of God's word. Peter concurred with this over in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 through 25. <clears throat> Here says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. The discovery of the law uh, was, was in the providence of God that he, he, was, he was going to make sure that that law was preserved. And so that is a very, a very powerful reminder of us to, to God's intention for, for people even at a future date. But also we, we also see in a great example for us about what happened after they found that law. If you want to turn over to 2 Kings, I don't have this one on the board, but turn back to 2 Kings and this time go to chapter 23. 2 Kings 23. <clears throat> and look at, at the, the, the restoration, the, the movement that happened with finding the law. It says in verse 1, Then the king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets with him, and, <clears throat> and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people entered into the covenant. And so we, we see through God's providence in this, in this second part of the, of, of the formation of the Old Testament, he gives people the free will to turn from him. He preserves his word. And that preserved word has power whenever the people find it, when they read it. They, we have this huge restoration that happens. And that leads us into the third part of, the, of this uh, third event for the Hebrew text that we see. Um, forming it, and that is the restorations of Israel. Because about 200 years later, after all this has happened, uh, uh, Judah has fallen into Babylonian captivity, um, and many have been carried off. So there were restorations that happened, but it wasn't enough to, to completely turn the people back to the Lord. We see uh, after Josiah, more kings came in, more people turned their hearts to idolatry and turned away from God, and the, the message that was proclaimed to them over and over again 
wasn't heeded until eventually judgment was brought upon them. And so some 200 years after falling into Babylonian captivity, the Lord begins to work through men like Ezra. And the people are allowed to finally return to Jerusalem. And now they're here under Persian rule. And we read in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6 that Ezra came up from Babylon. Ezra came up from Babylon and he was skilled, uh, a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And then verse 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. We read so much here about what's going on with Ezra and and his attempts to restore uh, the the people of Israel to, to God. And in this great time, there's a lot of formation that happens with the, the remaining uh, parts of the Old Testament. Because what he finds, just like Josiah found, was unfaithfulness of the people. And to address that, he initiates this major period of restoration. Turn over to Nehemiah for just a moment. Nehemiah chapter 8. In Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 8, we read a little bit about this, the beginning of this restoration. It says, And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, uh, which they had made for for the purpose and beside him stood, stood these, these men uh, who, were, who were there to, to help out. They stood on his left hand, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. And he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And then Ezra blessed the Lord, uh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then again, we, we have these, the, these people mentioned that were there to help the people understand um, And they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. We see a great period of of change uh, coming for the people when Nehemiah is trying to restore the people back to God. And the events that took place during these times served to complete this body of work that would become the Old Testament. It would serve to preserve them, to teach them, and to continue to hand them down. And then we see the Jews do something with this, with this body of work. They divide it. And they divide it into three parts. And I know we typically think of the old, old law divided into four. But the Jews actually divided this body of work into three sections. The first was the Torah, which was the first five books of the Old Testament. We have the Pentateuch. They call this the, 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 the law. Um, then they divided it into the Nevi'im. Or the prophets. And this is this section that is highlighted here. And then the third part that they divided it into was, was the Ketuvim. It's spelled, uh, looks to be pronounced differently, but that's how I've been told it's pronounced. And that is the writings. And, and this is the way that the Jews divided this, uh, this law up uh, and, and the way that they signified each part of it. Now what's very interesting then is Jesus' words over in Luke 20 24 and verse 44. Because he says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Psalms was the first book of the Ketuvim. 
And so Jesus identifies and acknowledges all three portions of what we would call the Old Testament canon. And that word canon simply means a rule or a measuring line. So Jesus was acknowledging that the books which made up the Old Testament at, the, at his time were considered closed. There wasn't anything being added to them. There wasn't anything being taken away. And we can even see that in writings that occurred in between the, the, the time of, of Malachi and, and the, the gospel being recorded, books that are considered apocryphal like the Ecclesiasticus or the Sirach. In their prologues, they cl- uh, claim... Uh, and and have, have recordings of such that say many and great things have been given to us by the law and the prophets and by the others, or in some places, by the rest of the books. These books, which were written around 200 B.C., are even further proof that the Old Testament was considered complete very shortly near the end of its recorded history, and certainly long before the coming of Christ. Now, friends, I, I hope that, that this is served as, as an opportunity to whet your appetites to study this more, because this is certainly a very small sampling of the information that is available to us about the history of, of God's great book. But more than that, I hope that it moves us towards greater confidence in His Word. Because this is not just the emotionally charged work of men who planned and orchestrated this message out. If this were, if God's Word were, were, were such... I would say that this is by far the most dangerous book that has ever been written because it, is, it has caused a great deal of suffering and persecution and, and turned worlds upside down because people have been obedient towards it. But on the contrary, just as we noted before, and we'll continue to see that this is the inspired Word of God revealed by the Holy Spirit and recorded by men that the world might know the awesome power and the great love of God. Within it, we find the gospel of Christ. And Lord willing, we will study that further, the formation of how we, we've got the gospels and how we re- receive the New Testament in future lessons. But one thing I want us to note is that this gospel message shows us the love of God by convicting us. It convicts us of, of the crimes that we have committed against Him, the sin, the transgressions. And then it displays the great depths, as we talked about this morning, to which he reached that we might be forgiven. And it's this gospel that we respond to. In Acts chapter 2, the men there on the day of Pentecost, they heard this gospel preached. They heard this message. And they asked the most important question that one can possibly ask when realizing the seriousness of sin. They said, what shall we do? What do we do? Peter's response was, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of of your sins. This afternoon, is there some way in which we can help you to do just that, to become a child of God and to continue your walk with Christ? If there is something that we can do to, to be assistance of that, I hope that you would come forward. I hope that you would let it know, right? Let us know right now as we stand and as we sing.